grab your Bible, grab a journal, um, 2 Timothy journal, and we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. All right, we're going to begin the second chapter today. We're looking at verses 1 through 7. Give you a second to get there. All right. Uh, Hey, Michigan State University recently did a research article on how kids learn best. They said, and this should be no surprise to any of us, but they said that they learn best through observational learning. That means that more is caught than taught. Meaning this, they tend to watch us, observe us, they watch TV and iPads, and they mimic what they see more than what they're told, and that's what they do. This comes out most in most of our kids' lives when, they're getting, when they get angry or when they don't get what they want. The reason why it frustrates me and frustrates you so badly whenever our kids get angry is because you're looking at a mirror into your own reactions and you don't like it. I remember whenever Allison and I were starting this church, we, we did a church planting residency, and at that time, Emma was four, uh, and we put her in this private school, um, preschool, whatever thing that we got to do a part of this church that we are a part of, and one day, she was particularly upset when we dropped her off, and she's in class, and she's folding her arms, and the teacher's like, Emma, what's wrong? She says, leave me alone. I'm just peed off today. She didn't say that word. She said another word. But I don't think I'm allowed to say that. So they called us, um, and they called the lead pastor of the church, and he's laughing. He's having a great time, and we're both laughing because we both know that she didn't learn that from me. No, I'm just kidding. She probably did. Um, We've all been there, haven't we? Haven't we all been there in those moments when our kids just say something and our faces get red, and we're like, I cannot believe that just happened. The reason why that happens and the reason why we get embarrassed, again, is because it came straight from us, that that we are the best models of behavior for our kids. Now, all of us know that. All of us know that we naturally learn most when we observe something or when we model something. Here's the problem, though. Even though we know that, and I'm going to prove my point right now, even though we know that we still tend to learn by asking somebody to stand on a stage and teach us as we sit there for 45 minutes and we go home and do nothing about it. Every, everything we do in life, whether it be going to school or coming to church, is, is designed in such a way that you have a speaker and we listen to them and we don't do any modeling. Until we begin to embody the Christian life and not simply come to learn a bunch of things, there will be a gap between what we know and who we are. See, you can't just learn about Jesus. You have to see him. You have to experience him, and then everything will change. The fancy word for that, and the one we're going to look at today, is discipleship. A disciple is a follower of Jesus, not just a student. A follower follows, right? They, they take what they know, and they embody it. What you're about to see Paul tell Timothy is that's when the Christian life comes alive. It's time to act. It's time to take what you've heard from me and embody it into who you are. It's time for you to do something about it. See, chapter 2 is the turning point of the entire letter. In chapter 1, if you remember, Paul, he's under intense persecution from Nero. Things are going really badly. Um, Timothy is struggling, and Paul is telling Timothy, keep going, keep going. Now in chapter 2, he's going to tell him how to keep going and how to be strengthened and how to endure in this faith. You ready for it? Chapter 2, verse 1. Look what he says. You then, my child. By the way, I love that. I love that because you even see this in um, John's writings. As John gets older, he calls you beloved, like a sage grandfather. 
as he's talking. I can almost see Paul sitting down in a chair, and he's saying, hey, my child, like, and the posture in his voice even shifts, doesn't it? Hey, you then, Timothy, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That you then there, that you then points back, doesn't it? He, he's connecting the dots from the first chapter. Now, I know that seems obvious, but one of my jobs as a Bible teacher is I want to teach you how to think and read the Bible. Oftentimes, whenever you hear sermons, somebody grabs a text, they grab a verse or two, and they don't connect the dots for you, and yet, whenever the writers wrote, they wrote in complete thoughts. So this whole thing is connecting the dots from chapter 1 to chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened. Here's the deal. Timothy needed to be strengthened. He needed strength. Paul was reminding him that it wasn't going to happen by gritting it out. He wasn't going to find his strength from within. Timothy needed to lean on Jesus in order to get strength. You see it here. Notice the text. Paul doesn't say, Timothy, my child, be strong. For you English people out there, he uses what you call the passive imperative tense. He's telling him your strength comes from somewhere else. Imperative means command. Be strengthened. You be strengthened, get your strength from somewhere else. This is super important because he didn't need to grit it out. He needed to receive his strength. He needed to receive his strength from the grace of God, not from within. The language here is so important because it's about abiding. And why do I say that? Because for many of us, if you want to be strong, you've got to understand what Paul is saying. Paul is telling you the same exact thing. Paul is telling Timothy, the way to be strong in the Christian life is not to try harder, but to clo grow closer and closer and closer in your relationship with Jesus. It's to abide in him. It's the more you lean into Jesus and the more you trust in Jesus, actually the more confidence you get in your own strength, or in the strength that he puts in you. Paul is saying the more you abide in Jesus, the more he works through you to do the things that you could never do on your own. Again, connect the dots. Things are really bad. Paul is struggling, or Timothy's struggling. He's suffering. He is having such fear. And Paul looks at him and he says, I need you to be strengthened, but that strength's not going to come from within you. It's going to come from your trust in Jesus. You remember that in the first chapter where he tells him the same thing? In verse 7, he says, this power, remember that word dynamite? It's the same Greek word. The power that you have is not your own power, but it's the power of God's spirit inside of you. And that spirit is not of one fear, but it's about um, sound mind. That power that God gave you is one that is about abiding, and he is going to start unleashing his strength and his power through you. Like a good grandfather, Paul looks at him in the face and he says, he says, be strengthened. Fragile child, be strengthened. But your strength's not going to come from you. It's coming from Jesus. And that strength won't lead you to fear, but it will lead you to power. Maybe today you need to be reminded of the same truth. Listen, maybe you're just too weak. I, I get that. Like for many of us, that's where we are, is we feel this sense of weakness. Like I, I don't know if I can hold out. I don't know if I can keep doing this. I love this quote by J.I. Packer. Look what J.I. Packer says. Your faith will not fail while God sustains. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. Some of you find your weakness to be an obstacle. You've been told your entire life that you need to be strong. You need to be strong, and you just can't take it anymore. Like that stoic expression that you carry on your face whenever adversity happens and you feel like you're just strong and courageous, you might be able to fool the entire world, and yet on the inside, 
on the inside is eating you alive. Listen, your greatest strength isn't in your ability to suck it up or grit it out. Your greatest strength is in your ability to lean into Jesus and trust him when none of it makes any sense. You know why Paul could say that? In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul has the same exact problem. His life's falling apart. Things are hard. The Bible says that he has this thing called a thorn in the flesh, something tormenting him. It was either a chronic pain or it was some kind of a torment in his soul, and yet something was hurting him so deeply that he just didn't want to go on. The only example I can have of this is when I was in college, um, I, I had a football injury that ended up ending my, fo- my career where I severed a nerve running down my right leg uh, that created such chronic pain that I couldn't sit down in class. And when I would sit down, I couldn't straighten my leg and I couldn't sleep and I was on pain medicine. I had nine epidurals and ended up having a back surgery to remove my disc in my lower back that ended my football career. And for about a year, I felt this pain that was just so nauseating that I didn't want to move on. In some sense, I think that that's the the image you should have in your mind when you think about this thorn in the flesh that Paul had. Something in him just was destroying his outlook on life. And when he was at the point of despair, listen to what Jesus said to him. My grace, Jesus said, is sufficient for you. For my power, that same word, is made perfect in weakness. So then Paul says, therefore, if that's true, then I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content, Paul says, in my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Listen to this, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Y'all, weakness is God's greatest gift to reveal our fragility, and it helps us to lean into him. Think about it like this. Imagine your life was a cup filled with water. The more of that water that's you, the less you can have of Jesus. Oftentimes, our suffering is God pouring out a little bit of you so he can fill him up, he can fill you up with a little bit of him. And I think oftentimes we think of ourselves as weak and we think, we think the more that I can grit it out, the more that I can pour me into that, the better off I am. And Jesus is looking at you and Paul and Timothy and saying, that's not where strength comes from. That's where self-reliance comes from. And at the end of the day, that's not going to get you where you want to go. I need to pour a little bit of you out so that I can fill you up with me. Remember last week, we talked about Jesus giving you mercy and mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. Now he says grace. Grace, get the picture of this. The grace of the gospel is this. God giving you what you don't deserve, which is his love and compassion. See, that's the gospel. The greatest strength in the world is knowing the gospel. It's knowing that Jesus has given you everything in him. Think about that. Jesus has already lived your perfect life. He's already died your death in your place. So what in the world could ever happen to you? I think that's the perspective. Timothy, be strengthened in the fact that it's already finished. You have nothing to fear. So with that in mind, check out what Paul says next, because it's going to be the way that Paul reminds Timothy of his empowerment in the gospel. Look what it says. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men or people who will be able to teach others also. You see it? See the plan? Lean into Jesus, Paul says, and make disciples. Listen, y'all, that's the game plan for the Christian life. 
as we pour out ourselves into other people, Paul says, that's when you will come alive. I am so convinced that God works in us as he works through us. That that's what he does. As we pour out our lives for the sake of the kingdom, then Jesus pours in his strength into our lives and the entire thing multiplies. Did you notice, if you put that verse back up there, there's actually four generations. What you've heard from me, that's Paul, right? To Timothy, that's the second generation. I need you to trust to faithful people who are going to do it to others also. Four generations of discipleship he's talking about here. You, you have to notice that Paul is telling him when you model it and it comes alive, then I need you to go model it and make it come alive with other people. That's how the gospel will continue to multiply. Let me just ask you, when was the last time you learned something so well that you could turn around and take what you just learned and tell somebody else all about it and then they could go do the same? Uh, and if you want me to just be really convicting, could you take what I talked about last Sunday and do that? I don't even remember what I talked about last Sunday. Could you? See, that's the whole point of observational learning versus you coming and sitting in here. When you embody it, you actually can internalize it. By the way, this is why coaching works so well, right? When you're coaching, you're actually in the activity. I, I started coaching lacrosse this year. I know nothing about lacrosse, and yet I'm learning more and more and more because I didn't read a rule book. I got on the field with my daughter, and I just started doing it with her. That's what Paul is saying. That's the difference. I'm just telling you that's God's game plan to change the world. It's not for you and I to come into this building. Listen, God's game plan has never been about building big buildings for crowds to come hear a message. And God's not even against big crowds. You realize that, right? He wrote an entire book of the Bible called Numbers. I don't think he minds big crowds. He fed 5,000. In the book of Acts, it literally says that they added to their numbers daily. And most scholars will tell you that the first church was probably a mega church where they met in multi-site locations around Jerusalem because they didn't have a house big enough to encapsulate the whole thing. God's not against numbers. And can I just say this for the record? There are great mega churches, and there are bad mega churches, and there are great small churches, and there are bad small churches. The size of your church does not determine the faithfulness of your church. I, I get so tired of hearing people because we're in a small church, bash big churches. And when I was at a big church before this, they bashed small churches. That's not the point. God's never been about that. Here's the point. God's plan is not to build a gathering, but a kingdom. And the way that he builds a kingdom is through multiplication. As we pour our lives into other people. And the only way that it's going to work is when we change our mindset from come in here to go and tell. Remember, I told you again that kids learn best through observational learning. Here's what I mean. You don't sit your kids down on the sofa and explain to them how to interact in certain situations. They pick it up from you as they watch you do it. Listen, the Christian life is most impactful and most effective when we stop holding classes and start embodying what we know by intersecting our lives with the things we already do and do it with gospel intentionality. That was Paul's point. If the church is going to survive, Paul is saying, she has to get their strength from Jesus because things are not getting easier. Everyone, everyone in this church would need to start replicating themselves into somebody else or else the whole thing was going to fail. Like my friends Clay and Amy in, in Africa say, just one, 
just one person? What if all of us had the mentality that we were just one? And we were going to pour our lives out into just one person. Do you know what would happen? The compounding interest and the amount of people that would come to faith in this model of discipleship, listen, 2,000 years ago, there were 11 scared followers of Jesus hiding in an attic until the empowerment of the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they started embodying their lives. And do you know that right now it's estimated that there are 2.4 billion Christians in nearly every single country on the planet? With just starting with 11 people. See, when we change our mindset from come in here to go and tell, and we start embodying that, everything changes. The Christian life is not about information. It's about transformation. It's about taking what you know and living it out, and that's the most, empower, most powerful and impactful tool you can have to change the world. That's what Paul wanted Timothy to do. He said, Timothy, in order for you to live in this world, in order to be strengthened, I need you to come alive. And the way you're going to come alive is going and telling everybody you know about Jesus. So he gives him, he gives him three examples that we're going to look at really quickly about what that looks like. Because listen, you cannot lead where you have not gone. And that's what Timothy needed to know. In these three examples, you have, you have a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And we're going to take some time to check these out. But as I thought about this, here's, here's what came to my mind. Do you know what all three of those have in common? Uh, to me, you know, it just came out, they're just tough. Like a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer, just tough. And there's something about that that I love. But that's not really the image I get whenever I think of Christian. I don't know, maybe you, I, I think weak. But I don't think that's what Paul thought. I think Paul thought tough. See, for many of us, we think about Christianity more like a travel agent than a tour guide. Except, I think the Bible thinks about it more like a tour guide than a travel agent. A travel agent books, you, books your flights for you and tells you to go. A tour guide says, come with me as I show you the way. When we think about the Christian life, we have to think about it through modeling sacrificial living. And let me just say, there's nothing more powerful. I know this by example. There's nothing more powerful than watching somebody live out the Christian life by example. People with so much conviction that they'll go anywhere that Jesus asks them to go and do anything that he asks them to do. That's what a soldier does. People who are so disciplined and live with such integrity, that's what an athlete does. And farmers just put in the hard work. Y'all, if you want to make a dent in this world, I think that we have to follow these models. So look what he says. Number, or verse three, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. In other words, winning the war at the end is worth the pain right now. And yes, the Christian life isn't easy. That's one of the greatest myths we've been told, is that it's going to be easy. No, going to war is hard. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, he says, since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. Church, the church is an army and not an audience. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the Christian life is an individual. You are not a Lone Ranger Rambo. You are an army, an army with multiple people. And when you became a Christian, when you became a Christ follower, the things of this world stop being important to you because you have a higher calling. That's what Paul wanted Timothy to know. Yes, Timothy, the Christian life is hard. It's really hard. I'm sitting in jail and I'm suffering right now. But you need to get that we have a higher calling. And because we have a higher calling, what you're experiencing right now 
it doesn't really matter because God has enlisted you to something greater. Here's the point. Multiplying yourself in the Christian life is not a task for the varsity level Christian. It was in a task for every Christ follower, including you. See, and if you don't get that, you're going to fall into the same trap that so many people have fallen into. You're going to get distracted by a bunch of stuff that just doesn't matter all that much. I mean, isn't this what always happens? We get distracted by politics or religion, and then that hijacks our faith, or self-image, or comfort, or our own happiness. I, we say things like, if I just had a basement or a Yukon Denali, like, I'd be fine. Are you kidding me? You're going to get that, and you're going to want the next thing. This is what C.S. Lewis said. This is one of the most convicting quotes I've read this week. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's Satan's formula. How many of us have fallen into this? I want the pleasure that lasts for two minutes at the expense of what God has for me. See, and all the while, we wonder why we don't have any strength because what we don't realize is our strength happens as we follow this formula. God has called us not to maintain the status quo, but to build a kingdom. And that gives you significance and purpose. Remember Matthew 28, the Great Commission, one that you should probably memorize. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go, therefore, that's a command, and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. Notice, this is not a suggestion. Jesus is saying, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. That means, like, all authority in the heavenly realm and on the earth where we live. And that Lord, this one right here, has commissioned us to go make disciples. That's the point. When we start viewing the Christian life as a battle, we start living differently. Paul was trying to shift Timothy's perspective. He was telling him that there is a war and there are a lot of people that are suffering. So I need you to get in the battle. Guys, I'm going to be honest. Like This text right here, for me, didn't really come alive until the last couple of weeks because we live in a, we live in a time where I've, I've never come face to face with any realities of war. Okay, I'm in my mid-30s and it's been pretty like out there for most of my life. And then this week, I, I watched images of guys kiss their little girls goodbye and get, as they got on a train and they grabbed a gun and went to war. I have three kids and I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I watched a president who walked through the streets of a capital city and became a hero because he wasn't going to give up on his people when all the cards were stacked against them. And I think that that's the image that God has given us. Instead of running, dig in. Listen, sometimes, sometimes life feels like a war you're just not going to win. It feels that way. And I'm sure that's how Timothy felt. That the enemy is bigger than you can handle. And I just need you to know that's true. But you have a strength from the king of the universe who said, I will fight with you. See that last phrase, I'm with you always to the end of the age? See, it's through the grace of Jesus that we enter into this thing called suffering because, well, we have a perspective that narrows our focus. And our focus narrows, honestly, for two reasons. For number one, because Jesus is the one who's with us. He's the one who's called us to do it. And then I just think because people's lives matter. 
when you understand that there's a war being fought over people's souls, that's not about territory and economics, it's about eternity. It changes everything. Charles Spurgeon, if sinners be damned, at least let them leak to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertion. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Y'all, that kind of perspective right there only happens when you understand that there is a war being waged over people's souls. By the way, that's why we came to City Church. You know, we didn't come here and plant this church because we were running from something or we thought it would be easy. We knew it would be the hardest battle of our lives. We came from a great church that we loved. And yet, we came here because we had a burning conviction that there was a war being fought and people needed to hear the gospel. That's why Gene came here. That's why the Willises came here. That's why Kelsey, who's on the stage, started singing with us, and Derek, and Emily, and Whitney, and, and all these people came here and joined us, not because we thought this would be easy, but because we thought it'd be worth it. And listen to me, it has been worth it. God is doing a good work here. God is growing his church in every way. On Easter, we're going to baptize more people because more people have heard the gospel and we're going to keep pushing back darkness in the city. Church, city church isn't here just because we want to do Sunday mornings and nothing else for the rest of the week. We're here because we want to transform this city with the gospel. And then we want to take that gospel and we want to continue to multiply it over and over and over again. Listen, our best days, I truly believe, are ahead of us. I believe that in the coming years, we're going to see the 150 people at City Church multiply drastically. And it's not because we're going to say, come, come in here, come in here. It's because we have shifted our mentality from coming here to a responsibility to take the gospel out there. And as we do that, people are going to continue to come to faith. I believe that this is the most strategic time in our church's history. Like the Bible calls it a Kairos moment. A Kairos moment like for such a time as this. I believe that City Church has raised up all of us for such a time as this, that he has strategically positioned us and given us some pretty incredible things because the king of the universe has called us and given us a message to go change the world. And that is going to happen when we all do it together. The second example is this, an athlete. Listen to what he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now don't miss what Paul is saying. The one thing that you have to have in sports is integrity. According to Paul, you can compete, and if you don't compete according to the rules, it doesn't really matter. Let me just say it another way. The ends never justify the means. God's not up in heaven worried about you checking a bunch of boxes if it doesn't impact the way that you live. God doesn't want you to be a talking head with a bullhorn and then be a terrible father and an absent husband. You track it with me? The Christian life takes integrity. It's not just what you do, it's who you are. Think about how many athletes are disgraced because they cheated. Lance Armstrong, Barry Bonds, Pete Rose, Cristiano Ronaldo, Tom Brady. I don't know if he actually cheated, but he either cheated or made a deal with the devil because he's just too perfect. Paul is telling Timothy, the Christian life is like a sport. And sports take a lot of training and a lot of dedication that most people will never see. But they also take integrity. It's all the hard work that you put in. Listen, cheating, cheating might work for a while, but eventually you're going to get found out. 
And you can cheat in the Christian life too. You get that, right? You can cheat. You can fake good character, even though character is what you do when nobody's looking. But you can fake it. You can put on a mask. You can walk into this church. You can play the judgmental game. You can do all that, and you can not be real, and you can fake all of it. But at some point, at some point, you're going to get found out, or you're just going to get tired of doing it. If you want to see the gospel flourish, it's not going to happen while you fake it. It's going to happen because of genuine life change that comes through you. See, I've heard that you can compare the Christian life to putting paint on an invisible God. You know what? Basically, the way that you live is like putting paint on an invisible God through you. So people see Jesus by how you live. This goes back to what you understand about the gospel, too. The gospel says that you cannot earn your salvation, that it was freely given. And because it's freely given, you can't cheat it. Listen, I'm going to be honest with you. Jesus is not all that impressed by your religion. You know what he is impressed by? He's impressed by hearts that are genuinely changed by the gospel. He's impressed by the faithfulness of you to your spouse. He's impressed by the way that you genuinely love your kids and the way that you treat people with kindness, even those who hurt you. Y'all, you can't fake or cheat that. That stuff is only formed by being with Jesus. See, full circle, observational learning. Think about it. How, how do you actually live the Christian life? Not by only reading your Bible, but by being with Jesus. So let me just give you a couple ways that you can be with Jesus. Number one, being with Jesus means that you model the life of Jesus. I mean, it's that simple. Do you know what Jesus did most often? He pulled away to pray. Can I ask you, when was the last time you carved out margin in your day to just walk away from all the stress of this world for five to ten minutes and get alone with God? Do you know how powerful that is? When you walk into a meeting that you know is about to like, just blow the lid off of your head and you just stop for a moment and, all right, God, I know what I need to do and I know that's going to be hard. Would you give me patience and grace? Y'all, sometimes I do that when I pull in my driveway. Like I know, I've been working all day and I'm about to walk into World War III and it's nobody's fault. It's just the fact that that's what happens after you're together for an entire day. And I'm like, you know what, God? Like, don't make me walk in and blow my lid. Let me be gracious and kind. Let me be understanding in every way. Jesus did that all the time. Listen, he surrounded himself with community. You know that Jesus didn't just travel by himself. He didn't just travel with the disciples. He traveled with Mary. And many scholars believe because Peter was married, even Peter's family traveled with them. Peter, or Jesus always had a group of people that he did life with. He made decisions together. They ate meals together. They lived in community. Too many of us show up for small group for one hour, go home, and don't speak to anybody at church for the rest of the, uh, rest of the week until we do it all over again. That's not the way that he envisioned it. Let me just tell you, I think that you need to have people in your life that have a view into your life, a voice into your life, and a vote into your life. Who are those people? Now listen, not everybody should have all of those. But there should be people that are outside of your spouse that have a vote into your life. That before you decide to take a new job, you call them up and you say, hey, am I seeing this correctly? You know, one of the equations that I wish we even thought about more is before we decided to relocate, we thought about our church community. Because that's who we live with and do life with. Jesus, Jesus loved God's word. I mean, again, so simple, but 
the greatest way that you can know Jesus, the primary way you can know him is through his word. Not just do you read it, but do you love it? Here's number two. Being with Jesus means getting in the game. Jesus didn't call converts. He called disciples. Listen, as much as you like sports, you're not an athlete by Monday morning quarterbacking everything. You're an athlete by playing the game. It's that simple. The call is to do something. You have to do with something. You have everything that you need in the Christian life. Now go do something. We have a goal. We have a goal. Look at it again. Look at verse 5 again. An athlete's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. We want to win, guys. I don't know anybody that plays sports and doesn't want to win. Contrary to popular millennial belief, the participation trophy is not the trophy. We want more than that. We want to win the game. Paul was telling Timothy, you need to win the Christian life. Now here's the win. Faithfulness. Think about that. The win of the Christian life is faithfulness. How beautiful is that? The end goal of the Christian life is finishing well and hearing those great words. Well done. Well done. Here's the next example. The last one. A farmer. Look at verse 6. It's the hardworking farmer that ought to have the first shares of the crop. Put it all together. The way to change the world with the gospel is to be strengthened by Jesus. And here's how you get your strength from Jesus. First, you have to start viewing yourself as a soldier in this war called life, being fought over the souls of people. And then you have to live with integrity and get in the game and do something. And the last one, the last one is you have to work hard knowing that the results will come. Isn't that what farmers do? Isn't that what they do? Don't they get up before the sun? And don't they posture their lives in such a way that they just work hard? Like, have you ever seen a farmer's hands? The proof of their hard work is in the calluses of their hands. If I look at a shovel the wrong way, my hands start to bleed. These guys, they're tough. Listen, the proof of the Christian life should be in the dedication to Jesus. Sometimes I wonder if we should have more calluses on our knee because we pray so much that we just wear them out. The thing that made the hard-working farmer so amazing was that they had to depend on God for the crops, even as they worked really hard. See, farmers understood seasons. They understood that if the rain didn't come, if the soil wasn't right, it didn't really matter how hard they worked, nothing was going to work. Here's the principle. The Christian life isn't passive. It's hard work, and yet it's wise work. Now, here's what you need to know. In these three examples that Paul gives, there's a relationship between you and Jesus, right? The soldier doesn't go to war alone. The Christian life is a team sport, and the farmer is dependent on God to bring the growth. You see, the strength of the Christian life is in partnership, and that partnership happens as we lean into Jesus, abide in him, and allow him to work through us. I tell you that because here's the danger, and I see it all the time. If we're not careful, we will fall into one of two traps. Trap number one is that God does everything. God's whole, completely sovereign, so all I need to do is pray, right? I just pray all day, and God, you'll do it. That, that's just not how it works. Trap number two is, well, God's just distant, so I just got to work my tail off. I got to have all my religious activities, and I'll do it all, and maybe God will show up. That's not how it works either. Can you imagine 
Can you imagine if the farmer, all he did was pray all day? Like He's like, God, I just need rain to come. God's like, I need you to go plow a field, right? Or if he's just working 14 hours a day and the rain never comes and he never depends on God. Both of those are opposites and yet both of those seem to be the ones that we fall into these traps. We fall into the trap of just pray and read my Bible and never do anything or do everything all the time and never rely on God. The Christian life is never meant to be that way. See, the farmer plants seeds, but he trusts God. And what often happens, and here's what I need you to hear me say, is the fruit often doesn't come immediately. And yet he trusts. I think so many of us give up way too early. Like God's just like, don't stop praying for your uncle. And yet, as you pray for him, you need to go tell him about Jesus. Just keep going. Look, there's something to this. There's something to a life of perseverance. There's something to working really hard all the time, even when people don't see it. I, Craig Rochelle, listen to what he says. I, I love this. Craig Rochelle says, it's the things that no one sees that leads to the results that everyone wants. You know, there's something to a life of perseverance where God builds you into a certain type of person. I'm just telling you, there is nothing, there is no substitute for somebody who walked faithfully with Jesus for a lifetime. It builds a resolve in you to trust in him that nothing else in this world can do. And after seasons of farming and tilling the soil of God's kingdom, you start to trust in the goodness of God. You start to see his faithfulness over a long period of time. After competing on Team Jesus for a long time, you start to, re you start to build a resolve into the battle in this world, and you, you think it's worth it. And the results do come. You know, one of the coolest things that I actually like about Facebook, there's not a lot of things that are redemptive about Facebook, but one of them is, is the Facebook memories. There are often times whenever I get a picture and I send it to Allison, and I'm like, oh, there's Fat Billy, God rest his soul. Um, but then I look at my kids, and I'm like, man, they've grown so much. You know what I never do? I never sit down with Addie and on the couch, and I'm like, he just grew. Like, oh my gosh, there's an inch. Like, you, I cannot believe that just happened. But when the Facebook memory comes up and I look at Addie four or five years ago, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you have grown so, like, what happened to you? That's what the Christian life looks like. Oftentimes in the moment, you don't experience it. And yet, as you look back over your life, if you'll just hang in there, Ten years later, you're going to be like, y'all, I'm not who I want to be, but I'm not who I used to be. I'm telling you, that's how it works. All of a sudden, you look back one day and you're like, God, you have absolutely been faithful in my life. And yet, in every waking moment of the day, you will never feel that. You feel the grind, don't you? Doesn't it feel like, man, nothing's happening, nothing's changing? I've been working forever on this thing, and it just feels like I'm not getting anywhere. And Paul's like, uh, hang on. Like a farmer, just keep going, because the crop's going to come. Church, I need you to get what Paul's saying. By all worldly measures, Paul and Timothy had a really hard life. History tells us that both of them were martyred for their faith, and Timothy was really struggling to keep going. And Paul's encouragement, like an old sage grandfather, 
find your strength in Jesus and keep going. And when you're weak and when you tend to want to bow out and tend to be passive, that's when the enemy's going to attack you. I mean, anybody watch Discovery Channel? Right? I love this stuff. When does the lion attack? When you get the old, vulnerable animal over on the side. By the way, I, I mean, it's no, no wonder that in the Bible it's always a lion because they're evil. Like, that's what happens. They attack you. When you buy the lie and you start pouting and you start giving up on yourself, that's when you're most vulnerable to attack. Listen, your greatest strength in the Christian life is not passivity. It's partnership. It's working together. It's not sitting on the sideline. It's learning to abide in Jesus. And then embodying the Christian life right now where you are, trusting that the reward will come. In the end, God is going to strengthen you. And then Paul says this, verse 7. Hey, think over what I said. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Timothy. Listen, I know that I speak fast. I know that there's a lot of content here. Here's my challenge for you. Why don't you sit in this for just a little bit? Why don't you grab 2 Timothy 2 and think over what Paul is saying. Meditate on it. I promise you the Lord will make this stuff clear. He will reposition all of the preconceived notions that we've been taught about the Christian life. That it's either passivity or religion. And Paul says it's neither. It's a strength that only comes from Jesus as we unleash the power of the Spirit in our doing. And that's what will get you through. The reason why I tell you that, God's game plan to change this world is you. But it's also God's game plan to change your world. For many of us, we wait until we're qualified to get to do something, don't we? I, I think it's the total opposite. Start doing something and God will qualify you. The greatest ability is availability. Just go. Start serving. Get your family involved. I know that you don't feel like you're qualified to lead a Bible study for your family. None of us feel that way. And I went to seminary for way too long. And yet, the more I do it, the more that we talk about Jesus, the more that we spend time together, the more confident I get, and the more God changes me and my family. So you know what? Start leading a small group. Start serving on Sundays. Start being bold and talking about Jesus and your faith. Whatever the case might be. I mean, whatever. You fill in the gaps. God has given you the unique calling that he's given you. You figure it out. Like, it's not rules and it's not legalism. But I promise you, as you do whatever you do, God will unleash a power in you that will give you a strength and a resolve and a confidence that will build his kingdom, and he will build you through that kingdom. That's how Timothy was going to make it. And that's how you're going to make it.